According to CIA Director John Brennan, the war on terror is now being waged online. In a recent speech at the Council on Foreign Relations, Brennan warned about the threat of cyber terrorism and said the U.S. government needs to focus on protecting the Internet. Of course, the safety of our personal data online is of the utmost importance, and recent high-profile hacks reinforce this need. Yet the U.S. government is using the threat to push through sweeping legislation that will erode privacy while exempting companies from existing privacy laws. CISPA, or the Cyber Intelligence Sharing and Protection Act, is back as CISA, and Obama just issued an executive order that grants him the authority to sanction people or groups engaged in civil society online. With the renewal of the Patriot Act on the horizon, the conversation about mass surveillance and privacy rights couldn't be more vital. So to discuss all things spying and why it matters is Sam Sachs, co-founder of the News Co-op, the District Sentinel. Sam Sachs, co-founder of the District Sentinel, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, First, let's talk about the recent executive order that Obama passed that targets entities located partially or wholly outside the U.S., quote, directly or indirectly responsible for cyber activities, harming or otherwise significantly compromising entities in a critical infrastructure sector. What did I just say? What is this all about? Yeah, that's a good question, right? This is another, uh, this is the latest attempt by uh, the White House uh, to do something about quote unquote cyber threats. That's been kind of the buzzword for a few months now. Um, this executive order though is overly broad. And the, the strange thing about it was, it was, it was delayed. Uh, the, it's release, its implementation was delayed a week because the president was concerned about its overly broad nature and wanted to narrow it. But as you're reading the definition, you, you know, you could drive a truck through a lot of the meaning of those words. And one of the main broad terms is this idea of critical infrastructure. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security defines critical infrastructure in a very broad way. That can mean anything from a water treatment plant uh, to a casino. Um, certainly two things that you wouldn't consider both being critical infrastructure. Yes, uh, uh, you know, air traffic control towers, that sort of stuff you think of as being critical motels and casinos and sporting events, things like that, um, aren't really critical infrastructure, yet they're included um, as a definition of, of critical infrastructure. So somebody launches um, uh, uh, some sort of cyber authority uh, attack on uh, you know a, a hotel air or somebody that they don't like who's getting engaging in some sort of activity they don't like that suddenly becomes a national emergency and that person can be sanctioned uh, you know anywhere in the world even if they're partly located within the United States as you could tell from the initial definition as the district Sentinel points out this could potentially affect cyber activists and organizations like WikiLeaks uh, how well I mentioned the scenario in which you know a cyber activist could kind of be punished but uh, it, it talks about stealing state, state secrets or improper infiltration um, another definition of critical infrastructure or military sites military um, bases. So you could see a scenario, and, and plus this executive order targets anybody who benefits from, you know, an entity might not have engaged in a cyber uh, attack itself or a cyber intrusion itself, but benefited from uh, stolen secrets or stolen information. And you could see the U.S. government define an entity like WikiLeaks in that way. And already uh, you saw the U.S. government pressure companies that provided funding to WikiLeaks to cut off 
their services to WikiLeaks. So you've already seen the government not shy away from defining what WikiLeaks does as a threat to national security and taking measures. This executive action would just sort of legitimize those act, future actions even further. So a lot of people may not realize that um, CISPA is back, the Cyber Intelligence uh, Security and Protection Act that, um, you know, Aaron Swartz was on the forefront of defeating right before he died. Um, and it did get defeated. But of course, like the ghost bill it is, the zombie bill it is, it just keeps fucking coming back, man. And it's now it's back as CISA. They just dropped the P and it's totally under the radar. It's getting passed through with virtually no coverage. I mean, how does this executive order couple or does it even with with uh, uh, CISA's reemergence. Well, this is part of the reason you keep hearing cyber threats a lot coming back from the White House, and uh, because they, they're trying to push this legisla- legislation. Um, it's amazing that that CISPA and CISA and um, even SOPA and other laws similar to this haven't been passed, and a lot of that's because of online activism that we've seen. Um, but as as soon as the new Congress started, you saw the push again, and you've seen um, everybody rally behind this. You've seen the NSA director, um, Mike Rogers, come forward and say we need to pass legislation like this. Um, even he, he, at the end of last year, acknowledged there are some privacy concerns. Of course, this is legislation that basically gives companies uh, legal immunity to share enormous amounts of information with the U.S. government. Um, if that information is related to some sort of cyber threat. But again, there too, the definition is uh, is pretty much up to the government and is overly broad so companies can end up sharing even more information with the government than they already do now under this law and be completely immune from any prosecution for doing so. Um, you know, I, I it looks like it's going to be passed. This is something that has bipartisan support. Um, and... It's just a matter of of giving getting everybody in line and uh, on the left, and you know making sure there's not too much resistance amongst sort of the libertarian right that's kind of united with certain liberals on this issue to to stand opposed to it. And, and then and then you have the whole double standard, right? This is what I love. According to the Washington Post, in 2011 alone. The U.S. carried out 231 cyber offenses against, quote, adversarial countries, you know, like North Korea, Iran and Russia. Um, why was everyone so up in arms about, you know, the interview situation? I mean, that's a whole nother scenario. Right. But I mean, just cyber attacks in general, if the U.S., you know, not only the Stuxnet blueprint, but the U.S. is routinely carrying out cyber warfare on different countries. Yeah. And this is something we learned early on with the Snowden documents, one of the documents that didn't get much um, attention was that the president had uh, a list of offensive cyber operations drawn up. So he, 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 this isn't defensive cyber operations. These are offensive cyber operations. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Sony hack got so much attention is because we're in the midst of this push to pass legislation like CISPA and to give more authorities to the executive and to private companies uh, when it comes to dealing with, quote unquote, cyber threats uh, that are out there. Um, that's why it was in the news so much. But yeah, uh, this idea that reporters are are surprised or, um, you know, you've heard reporters ask the White House a lot of questions like, 
Are they changing their tactics in response to North Korea? Or is the White House prepared for offensive cyber operations? It's like, yes, we know they're prepared. It's been long reported that the U.S. is engaging in the most cyber operations around the world and has been attacking countries like North Korea for quite a while, long before the Sony hack. So uh, this isn't exactly like something that just came up out of the blue and the U.S. was just attacked by North Korea. And let's remember, there's also a lot of out lingering as to whether or not North Korea was actually responsible uh, for the, te- the attack. There's been a lot of private companies that have asked, who've done their own investigations and have found that it's more likely a rogue employee or someone else, and have asked the government to put forward the evidence that they have that is North Korea, and the government hasn't really been willing to do that at all so far. Just trust us. Just trust us like everything else. Um, you know, and speaking of surveillance and, and cyber warfare, let's talk about Snowden. And I don't know, man, I mean, watching the John Oliver interview with him, I I didn't like it because I felt like it was, I got it. I got like the angle that John Oliver was going for, but I just didn't, eh, I didn't really like it. Um, But what did you think about (laughs) kind of making the whole thing about dick pics, you know, making it to try to speak to the lowest common denominator of this country to give a shit about this? I think that was pretty smart. Um, And I think it's gotten people talking about all this again. And I guess any way that people are talking about the issue is better than them not talking about the issue. Uh, About the interview with Snowden, I thought the interview was weird. It seemed to be like edited, choppy. Um, You know, I'm not sure how genuine a lot of the answers were in response Mm -hmm. to the questions and whether the pauses were edited in there or not. Um, So it's, I mean, it's hard. Sure, it's funny. It was an entertaining interview and you could take what it you know, take from it what John Oliver wanted you to take from it. It's hard to garner too much news value from the interview itself, because like I said, I don't know how heavily uh, edited it was. Um, I had a problem, I guess, with one of the main points that, that Oliver was talking, and that is that people don't seem to understand who Snowden is. I mean, really, who cares? I mean, that's sort of the point of the whole thing was so that people don't really understand who Snowden is, but know more about what the NSA is doing. And that seems to be the case. If you come out of that interview, uh, once again, talking about dick pics and whether or not the NSA can see your dick, rather than talking about Snowden, that's good. Of course, there were some outlets who used that interview and focused just on that part about Snowden to make it all about Snowden, as they've tried to do since the since the beginning of these leaks yeah i guess i guess and and i agree with you i mean i think the biggest problem that i had with it was him kind of asserting that wikileaks is highly irresponsible you know and then you have snowden who's more responsible but still irresponsible where he's saying like you're gonna own this dude like if the new york times fucking doesn't redact something it's on snowden like the blood is on your hands right and then you know his like kind of cheap shot at julian assange i just thought it was odd um, I don't know if he was just trying to kind of play both sides there because he knows it's a uh, like tenuous issue, but I, I don't really know. Yeah, I get the line of questioning. I mean, uh, I think it's a legitimate line of questioning, and I think that Snowden isn't infallible. I think there's room to criticize him um, and room to second guess some of the the ways he went about this. I mean, obviously, he those are questions he's he should be prepared to answer. Um, do I think that that any of these, if it's found that he has been irresponsible, that that deserves 30 years in prison or some of the things that come uh, with Espionage Act convictions? Uh, obviously, no. 
Um, I think Snowden's made it clear that uh, he's more than willing to to come to the United States and to even face a trial over what he's done. Unfortunately, he doesn't think it'll be a fair trial because the way these prosecutions have usually gone. And when people are charged with the Espionage Act, they aren't allowed to make a conscience defense. Like they aren't allowed uh, to say that they did this for moral reasons, that this this leak exposed wrongdoing. They aren't basically allowed to use a whistleblower defense. So if you can't use that sort of defense, then you're not going to get a fair trial no matter what. so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's somewhat of a legitimate criticism that, that John Oliver launched, but I don't think it's, it's one that justifies the sort of heavy handed approach the U.S. government has taken to dealing with Snowden. Once again, um, it would have made way more sense if Oliver actually broached that issue. You know what I mean? He didn't really talk about the Espionage Act or the sense, you know, he kind of like threw in the joke about traitor and stuff. And I mean, these are really loaded terms and they do carry serious penalties AKA death. I mean, in some cases, we're talking about espionage here. So, yeah, but I do, I, I do agree with Greenwald's assessment about the whole thing, which is that it's not that Americans don't know about Snowden; it's that Americans don't know about really anything political going on because they're completely disengaged and disempowered. And we have a media apparatus that does not teach critical thinking or debate. And you know, political dialogue is just people yelling and and like silencing each other. I mean, that's what people learn from watching the news. Yeah. And I I guess if you were watching, if you were watching the John Oliver interview, you really didn't learn too much except in the frame of dick pics. Right. I mean, um, this is something that John Stewart was legitimately criticized for, um, for a while and still is criticized for is that you try and present this you, you're trying to escape being a part of any frame. You know, you're saying, I'm just making fun of both sides. Um, in this interview, I'm going to make fun of the government for uh, capturing all our dick pics. And I'm going to make fun of Snowden because he's ir- irrelevant. Nobody knows. And those are, you know, my two main points. I hit both sides. Therefore, I'm even. Nobody can attack me for being biased. But, you know, being a centrist or trying to go down the middle is still a frame. You know, that's still a direction that you're coming from, a position you've taken. And by, you know, playing with the idea that Snowden could be a traitor, as as John Oliver did, you're 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 using the government's line. There's no way that that's an objective line calling Snowden a traitor. You know, sure, a lot of people are talking about that. Sure, that seems to be a prevailing viewpoint among uh, the mainstream media, but that's still a viewpoint that you have decided. John Oliver has decided to to entertain in that in that segment. So, I think all that feeds in sort of to this idea that I don't even remember what we're talking about yeah, anymore. No, that, people are just that yeah, that people really don't 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 really know what's going on. They're sort of mm-hmm. spoon fed a lot of these lines that they want to be spoon that that the government wants them to be spoon fed, and that. You know, corporate media wants them to be spoon fed. And, you know, that usually involves them being ignorant to a lot of important issues. And speaking of espionage, you you wrote about a security contractor leaking top secret weapons blueprints to other countries. I mean, this is a clear violation of the Weapons Export Control Act, which they were charged for one account. Right. But they weren't charged with espionage. I mean, Talk about just this double standard here, and why do you think this official was given a slap on the wrist? You, you've seen it a lot now, and you also saw it with with the David Petraeus uh, situation. That is, 
if you're not trying to expose government wrongdoing, if you're not trying to be a whistleblower and you're just being reckless with secrets or uh, sharing secrets for financial gain or sharing secrets to hook up with some girl, as the case was with, with Petraeus to have an affair, um, you're just fine. You're going to be just fine. Um, so, yeah, this is a story of this uh, a woman who um, she f- founded a defense firm here in the United States. She also was involved in founding a defense firm in India. And she was basically taking top secret plans, military plans for um, uh, fighter jets, for helicopters, for engines um, that she was not authorized to share with foreign agents. And she was taking those blueprints and sharing them with her partner in India to use them to bid for contracts for foreign governments. Um, she was posting the the secret military blueprints on this church website that she was also an administrator on and giving him the password for him to get. I mean, it was some spy like level material stuff here. And this could easily be be espionage charge compared to how we've seen the charges thrown at people who share secret information with journalists. Um, you know, John Kiriakou was initially charged under the Espionage Act. Um, Thomas Drake who talked about the NSA, was charged under the Espionage Act initially. Chelsea Manning, uh, Edward Snowden. Um, these are all people who gave secrets to a journalist. Here's a woman who gave secrets to a business partner in India in hopes of advancing her defense contracting form. Or David Petraeus, who gave secrets to a biographer in hopes of getting his book out and perhaps impressing his biographer with all the secrets he has to uh, have an affair with her. It it really is a a double standard that exists in our legal system and how we approach leakers around the government. If you're within government and you leak stuff, you're going to be okay as long as you're not leaking any wrongdoing. And when you have like government officials, like ex-treasury officials and shit, just like leaking classified information or maybe not classified, but I mean, leaking information to journalists like Eli Lake and Josh Rogan, and that's all fine, you know, and, it, and it's used to embolden like talking points of the war on terror. And that's completely all good. Um, and that just goes along with that whole double standard is that that's, that is completely okay. Um, And, you know, the Espionage Act is no joke, everyone, if people don't really understand where this originated from. World War One. I mean, this is like a treasonous charge. This is like super old school for spies back in World War One. Obama's used it um, more times than any other president combined is uh, who just got charged with it after Snowden. Didn't someone else just got charged with it? Espionage Act? No. I mean, Stephen King. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just throwing that, just throwing that charge out left and right, seeing what sticks. Um, and let's keep talking about surveillance because uh, District Sentinel just published this other article about the Stingray Club. Um, hilarious. Stingray Club. First rule of Stingray Club is do not talk about Stingray Club. What the fuck is Stingray Club, and how does it relate to mass spying? So this was a result of the New York Civil Liberties Union obtaining documents from um, the Erie County Sheriff's Department. So. Uh, you might remember at the end of last year, the Wall Street Journal published an article that the Department of Justice and local police were using uh, these devices called stingrays that are mounted in airplanes um, that basically mimic cell phone towers. And what they do is they collect cell phone data from people below. So you fly these stingrays over 
huge populations of people over cities, over neighborhoods, and you scoop up cell phone data looking for a particular cell phone. So if you're looking for a criminal, and we've seen that they use this for things as simple as robbery. If you're looking for a, a robbery suspect and you have a, a cell phone number that you think is belongs to that suspect, you fly this plane over and you look for that, that signal and you have the location of this individual. Unfortunately, you're also scooping up the data of lots and lots of people that are all um, that are that are around the area. Uh, this is something that this is sort of technology that was developed from the CIA that was used uh, for counterterror purposes uh, overseas. Now that has now come home for domestic law enforcement. Uh, as soon as these revelations came out, you uh, you saw senators, the the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, and the Democratic ranking member of that committee, uh, Patrick Leahy, write letters to the Attorney General you know, demanding more information about this program. They fear that this program is being implemented without judicial oversight, without congressional uh, oversight. And then we get these documents uh, this week from the New York Civil Liberties Union, which shows that uh, just that one sheriff's department uh, ran dozens and dozens of these stingray flights for things as, as minor as robbery and only obtained a court order in one of those flights. So th- those senators' concerns are well-founded that this that there isn't much judicial oversight uh, over this program. The other interesting thing about this is any department that gets this Stingray technology, that gets approval to use this Stingray technology from the Department of Justice, from the FBI, has to sign a non-disclosure agreement, a confidentiality agreement, where they're not allowed to talk about any specifics of their use of these stingrays. So, uh, you know, they're, they're instructed in court cases not to give any infom- information beyond, you know, evidentiary value about the stingrays. And in some cases, they're even, they, they could be subject to the FBI telling them to drop a case, to not pursue charges against someone if the FBI is afraid that details of the stingray program could come out during a trial. So it's 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 something that um, is is a top secret uh, domestic surveillance tool that's used by police all around the country, in which they're bound by a confidentiality agreement not to talk about. Um, and this is something that has senators concerned, and rightfully so. Well, especially when it's going after things like robberies. I mean, this reminds me of that whole like real-time Google Maps thing that the, the police agencies were testing out. It's like, how far are we going to go? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to, to catch a man stealing an old lady's purse and like follow her real-time through like Google Earth. I mean, this Stingray technology stuff, it it's, as you just said, it's adopted from the battlefield and this is not the battlefield, a fucking like massacre field. There is no battle going on, right? It's just these drones basically tracking metadata and phone numbers and it goes it goes back to the whole like point of how dangerous it is if someone just gives someone their phone you know and that could be like a drone strike target it's like you you leave your phone at your grandma's house or in church and then that church is just blown up by a drone it's just this is the same technology right the stingray technology i mean it's obviously they're not using drones to extrajudicially assassinate people in america but isn't it the same kind of well we know that the nsa has been instrumental in the drone strikes abroad using cell phone metadata, um, associating that cell phone with a certain terrorist suspect. And then when you get a hit on that cell phone, you just blow it up, assuming it's going to be with that suspect. Of course, you know, since that was reporting that was done, um, 
by Jeremy Scahill. And, you know, since then, we've we, we've seen all these reports about how, um, you know, suspected Al Qaeda operatives switch their phones around all the time and get around a lot of these things. So we end up uh, blowing people up who probably didn't deserve to be blown up as a result of of that. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what specific technology they were using to to locate these cell phones, but it's probably is something similar to the technology that's now being used by local police to pinpoint robbery suspects. Just instead of shooting a drone at them, once you identify the cell phone, you just send police in and nab them. Um, I mean, the question is what happens with all the other data that's scooped up uh, in addition to that? You know, it's kind of the, the same byproduct we see of all these bulk surveillance programs is they scoop up scoop up enormous amounts of data you might be able to get the needle that you're looking for but you also have all the all the hay that comes along with it which is you know information that belongs to innocent Americans. And isn't this precisely what Thomas Drake and you know Bill Binney and Kurt Wiebe basically brought up is that the more hay you have, the harder it is to find the needle. Like what, why do all this? Why collect so much data if it will make it ultimately harder to find that one like bad seed? That was part of what they were saying. They were also pushing for a program that automatically encrypted um, data that belonged to American citizens. Of course, that program was rejected. And instead, we went with just collect everything, don't encrypt any of it. And, you know, let us determine what's useful down the road. I think this idea of getting away from sort of targeted old-fashioned police work collection and getting to to this collected all as a result of just this philosophy that came with people like Michael Hayden, former NSA director, um, and Keith Alexander, who came after him. And we're learning also goes decades before that, in which officials realize they have the technological capacity to just collect they everything they can. if we can do it why not do it and we could be trusted doing it i mean usually the people who create this program don't consider themselves untrustworthy so they think they're the best people to trust that that should be trusted with all this um even if that's the case that doesn't mean that whoever's going to come after them can be trusted with all this technology as well just like Sam Harris's argument, the you know the new atheism, how now they're all like anti-Islam because his whole point is that when you're looking at the West versus Islam, it doesn't matter if the West or you know U.S. imperialism kills millions of people and Islam only kills ten. The moral point is what we should be most concerned about. So the U.S. has you know a moral imposition and and we have like pure intentions, right? And so he he's saying that that's all that matters is that so so going back to the point of just sociopathy, I mean. Yeah, you can think that you have pure intentions. You could also be a fucking madman. I'm sure Hitler thought he had pure intentions. Like, where does that kind of logic fall apart? Anyway, I don't know if you saw that. It's just really crazy. But I still wanted to talk about surveillance, though, because, of course, that other huge story about the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, came out. I know that it said that the the operation was terminated um, but this was going on for two decades, running a massive spine operation based on metadata, just like the NSA. I mean, what did this consist of? What was the extent of this program? This was run beginning in 1992. It was started by former President George H.W. Bush um, by his Justice Department, continued through the Clinton um, years as well. It was run out of the Drug Enforcement Agency and was basically going after drug traffickers and 
what the DEA was doing was collecting the metadata, which is the word that's been used a lot out of the Snowden revelations, which is uh, basically the data that includes your phone number, the phone number you called, the time of the call, the duration of the call. You can gather some other information from the call as well from it. Yeah, (laughs) you you can figure out who your dick pic was sent to. Um, You won't actually get to see the dick through the metadata, though. Um, So, yeah, they were collecting the metadata of all calls that originated in the U.S. to countries that were likely harboring uh, drug traffickers, which at the height of the program was over 100 different countries. So just collecting massive amounts of metadata. Um, The program uh, went on for 20 years. It was actually the precursor to the post 9-11 NSA program that went and collected the metadata of basically all Americans at all times (laughs) of their phones. Um, And we also learned with this DAA program that none of the phone companies, when they were told to start handing over the phone records of all calls originating from the U.S. to countries, over 100 different countries, none of them challenged the court or challenged the order in courts. They just kind of went along with it. Um, It was quietly. And this is the interesting thing, I think, about this whole program is after the Snowden revelations, the the Justice Department quietly shut the program down. Um, And we didn't even know this program existed. Uh, We learned that the NSA was doing the same thing in 2013. There was outrage about the NSA. The president came forward and said that he wants to see the the NSA get out of the business of mass collection, have it turned over to the telecoms to do that, and have the NSA give, you know, ask for requests from the the telecoms. Um, And as he was saying all this, he was quietly doing exactly that with the DEA program. He was shutting it down and then having the DEA every day request numbers from telecom companies, which is still bulk collection. Let's, um, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to say that this bulk collection program was ended when the government is still collecting massive amounts of information in bulk. They're just not collecting all the information on their on their own like they were used to and then searching their own databases for them. They're now just asking the phone companies uh, to hold on to the information and then sending thousands of requests a day to get uh, all that information. You know, it's so yeah, it is all kind of smoke and mirrors by saying we're ending bulk collection by just having the phone companies hold on to it and then us getting the information in bulk from them. Um, but at a at a, at a bare minimum, this is what NSA reformists want to happen with the the phone metadata program. And of course, the phone metadata program is just one bulk collection program of many bulk collection programs that the NSA is authorized to carry out under Section 215 of the Patriot Act. It could be financial records as well. Um, but it, as far as just the phone metadata program, which people are talking most about because that was what the first Snowden revelation was about... Um, as far as just that program, reformists want at least this program to be the, hand, the, the databases to be taken out of the hands of the government and into the hands of the telecoms. The president said he wanted to do this at the end of 2013. It's now 2015. He hasn't done this. He's said that you know he's had security officials say that they're worried about the costs of doing this. They're worried about the security lapses in doing this. And he's called for Congress to pass legislation to do this. 
All the while, he did the exact same thing already with the DEA program without asking Congress to get involved in it, without talking about the security risks and without talking about the extra costs added onto it. So, you know, the president is being a bit disingenuous with the fact that he hasn't transferred this NSA phone metadata program to the telecoms because he already did it with the D- with the DEA program that was revealed this week. Majority of people just have no idea, right? So like no one's calling him out on the fact that this happened um, because a lot of people don't really know the intricacies of, of NSA spying. And of course, the DEA spying did wonders, right? Drugs are gone. Opium's gone from Afghanistan. It's totally eradicated the drug war, totally didn't exacerbate anything at all. Where do, do, where do we stand now? I know that we're kind of on the eve of the renewal of the Patriot Act, you know, and, and of course, even the the guy who wrote the fucking Patriot Act said that Section 251 was never supposed to be about bulk collection. So where do we stand now? It seems like there's very little public discourse even about the repeal of this legislation, obviously, let alone like the renewal of it. Um, Is there any sort of pressure? Where is the NSA reform movement happening right now? Yeah, there seems to be a lull right now. You know, all this, uh, the Section 215 of the Patriot Act expires along with other provisions, June 1st. Um, And there's a little bit of uncertainty what happens after that. Um, There are some some thoughts that the government can continue a lot of these surveillance programs as long as they are related to active, ongoing terrorist investigations, which, (laughs) you know that could be used to pretty much continue the programs indefinitely. Um, at the same time, the government very much wants to get this issue resolved. They want this extended. And in a way, you know, the USA Freedom Act, it getting defeated in the Senate was kind of a headache for the government. You know, there was the legislation they wanted. It would have extended the Patriot Act. Um, so they wouldn't have had to deal with this issue. It would have moved the telephone metadata program out of the hands of the government into the hands of the, hands of the telecom, which, as we just talked about, is still a bulk collection program and still only applies to one very small part of NSA surveillance. Um, so they would have gotten off pretty easily, uh, but they weren't able to pass that legislation. You know, people like Rand Paul voted against it, mainly because it extended the Patriot Act. Um, I think you're going to see a big push on Capitol Hill. You're going to see a lot of fear mongering from um, FBI officials, from NSA officials saying that they need this authority extended. You saw uh, there was a an attempt on, there was a supposed attempt on John Boehner's life at the end of last year. Some crazy person was coming to Washington, D.C. to kill John Boehner or to try and poison John. I don't I think there was actually two different threats. There was one, a guy who was trying to poison John so Boehner. let's extend the Patriot Act. Yeah, and <laughs> there was another one where a guy was going to come to Capitol Hill and start throwing bombs at Capitol Hill. And John Boehner immediately came out and said, this is why we need to extend these authorities. And let's remember, for two and a half years, since the Snowden docs came out, came out government officials have given ample opportunity to make the case that these sort of bulk surveillance programs do prevent terrorism, have worked to foil plots, and they have completely failed making that case. Um, it seems pretty clear that bulk surveillance programs do not make us any safer. And if anything, they do make they do 
cause more danger because it does suddenly uh, muddy the waters. Suddenly we do have to have all this hay to shift through, to sift through, to find the needle rather than just actively looking for a needle. We took the needle and dumped a bunch of hay on top of it with these bulk surveillance programs. <laughs> um, so it should be an interesting few months. And this is this for once here, the, the reformers kind of have time on their side here. You know, if they don't do anything, these these authorities expire and maybe that will take a chunk out of what the NSA can can do. It is amazing that Banner's using his like personal, you know, issues to <laughs> reinforce the need for the Patriot Act. That's ridiculous. But speaking of Rand Paul, here's where I'm running into the problem because, you know, I obviously had a personal altercation with Rand Paul where he tried to get me fired, my press credentials stripped. So I'm coming from like an extremely biased perspective. But a lot of people will look at him and say, look, he is all about ending bulk collection. He's all about ending government surveillance. He's all about ending the drone program. At least that's what he we wants to do here, right? Preventing drones from ever killing Americans, right? If he's sitting at a cafe eating a scone, yeah. God forbid the drones come here. But then you see him kind of capitulating and in fact, like catering toward neocon war hawks about the Iran bill. I was fucking shocked that he signed on to the Tom Cotton letter. And just other, you know, other things, the, the Israel issue. I mean, why should we be more wary about him um, being a presidential candidate? I am excited about the Rand Paul <laughs> campaign. Um, I think he'll be an interesting voice in the Republican field. I think that he's getting a lot of flack for kind of compromising a lot of, you know, his, his um kind of anti-war beliefs, you know, he's becoming a hardliner on Iran. Um, and, you know, he's kind of becoming a hardliner in the in the war against ISIS and things like that, but he's running for president and that's sort of stuff you're going to have to do to win a Republican primary. And that's the sort of system we live in, in this political system. I think he is a better Republican candidate than most. Um, I th also think he's scary as hell. Um, you know, if, if we're, if the issue is strictly an overpowering executive branch, if that was the number one issue heading in, and it's a very important issue, um, reigning in the executive, Rand Paul's a pretty decent candidate. Unfortunately, there's a whole lot of other problems wrong with the country and a whole lot of other issues on an economic side, um, that Rand Paul would be absolutely disastrous at, as a president, uh, Having said that, I think he's going to run a pretty slick campaign. I think he's going to run a smart campaign, and I think he's going to be in the Republican primary until the very end of it. And you know, he he might ultimately lose because the money's going to gravitate towards someone like Jeb Bush or maybe someone like Scott Walker. Um, but he's going to be. I think the media is kind of underrating him right now a little bit. They overrated him, I think, several months ago, and now I think they're underrating him. Um, but you know, I think. I, th I think he'll be an interesting candidate, even though I'm personally scared to death of him and also agree with him a little bit on certain issues. Uh, I think so. I think a l it's been a long time since progressives have achieved much in the country. I think the last 30 years has been a backslide for progressive progressivism in the United States. Union rates have declined. Wealth inequality has increased. Um, but before that, there were a lot of advances made. And the, the last remnants of sort of 
progressive society in which you had things like unemployment insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Rand Paul's committed to kind of eliminating that. And it's somewhat of a tempting idea considering, yes, these are ideas that are 80 years old, that are 70 years old. Um, uh, but I don't think that the new idea should be to scrap them. It should actually be to expand them. It should be to do expand Medicare so that people under 65 have access to it or expand Medicaid so that everybody has access to um, a government health insurance program when they need it. Um, expand unemployment insurance so that everybody just sort of has a basic universal income even when they're not working or if they are working, they have money that supplants uh, their income. Uh, I, I'm a strong believer that too much, that the only check to too much corporate power is organized people power. And, you know, if you don't have unions, then that's usually going to have to take the, take the form of governments through laws and regulations and redistributive economic policies. And Rand Paul is on the complete opposite side of the spectrum on this. Rand Paul is essentially a corporatist and Rand Paul you know, believes in the the mythical free market to sort out the evils of wealth inequality and poverty. And that stuff's just been proven to be completely wrong. Um, I wanted to say one thing about the District Sentinel. Um, It's a news co-op. It's an organization that provides analysis from a leftist perspective, focusing on the federal government's policies and institutions uh, run by two amazing journalists here in D.C. Everyone check it out. District Sentinel. support them they're amazing they're doing really great work really cutting edge analysis on the day-to-day bullshit going on in the hill thank you so much sam Sachs, co-founder of the district sentinel for joining me on media roots radio thank you glad to be here